This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part of something much bigger than sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. And coming up later on in the show, we're going to catch up with New York Yankees president Randy Levine about... Baseball, yeah, it's back. Spring training is underway. Opening day just around the corner. Fans going to be in the stands in Yankee Stadium. And yet, it's still a tough business because we're in the midst of a global pandemic still, guys. That's straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. But first, I got to talk about a story that has really taken a couple twists and turns. Last week, uh, Bloomberg Business Week, our colleagues over there, a phenomenal story about the sneakerhead business, if you will, the secondary market for sneakers. It featured a young man who has done quite well for himself in that secondary market. Well, it turns out his mom was, until just recently, a senior executive at Nike. We're talking about Ann Hebert. She was Nike's vice president, general manager of North America, and she left her job this week. And it's really exposed this uneasy relationship between sneaker makers like Nike and this underground network. Let's hear from Josh Hunt. He wrote the story about the reaction to finding out what that story led to. From the moment that I first learned that you know, my main uh, sneaker reselling character was had a mother who was a top executive at Nike. You know, what did that mean? It's a very gray area, and readers of the story will note that we didn't accuse them of any wrongdoing because it's, it was very unclear what this meant. Now we have a little bit more clarity now that Ann Hebert has decided to resign. But frankly, I have to say I'm a little bit surprised because Nike defended Hebert very strongly in the piece, you know, when we went to to them for comments uh, prior to publication. So for this to happen so soon after the story landed, I have to think that maybe there was something in the story more than they expected. And I still wonder what that might be. So that is Josh Hunt, a contributor to Bloomberg Business Week, about his cover story, which led, we think, pretty directly to the resignation of Ann Hebert over at Nike. You know, guys, I'm going to go out on a limb and say neither of you is a full-on sneakerhead. Maybe you've got a, a side hustle uh, going on, Lynchy, that, that I don't know about. But I was blown away by this story. Setting aside the aftermath, uh, a fascinating, fascinating market here. I think it's the uh, the sneaker version of uh, insider trading right here. Yeah, with uh, West Coast Joe is his nickname out there, and uh, you, you don't you don't get a moniker like that unless you're you're a slickster. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bar, you know, I, I think you know, growing up in the South, I just referred to all of them as tennis shoes. That's a very yeah. uh, regional <laughs> thing, but yeah. you know, these are. I mean, this is a big business, and you know, the internet obviously has fueled this 
in a big time way, and it's an uneasy relationship as we've as we've pointed out. If you're Nike or Adidas or Puma, because you sell it for one thing, and and then it sort of takes on a, a life of its own. So we shouldn't sleep on the fact that you know this is a massive new asset class in some ways. I, I was trying to think of a, a comparison to this, and I think the best comparison I, that I can think of, and all three of us were in the broadcasting business, and especially doing news and sports, we, we can't go out and all of a sudden if Kellogg says, hey, we want you to endorse uh, Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. And then we go out and do a commercial for Kellogg's Frosted Flakes, and then... We're buying boxes of Kellogg's Frosted Flakes, and then we're selling it on a side hustle. Well, I'm just wondering about the ethics involved in that. I'm not saying anybody did anything wrong, but I I just wonder about that. Yeah, and what I wonder about here is the broader sort of corporate um, culpability here. You know, I, I think, you know, for a long time, and and we know you're a Detroit guy, uh, Michael Barr, you know, you know as well as anyone, you know, there are new cars and used cars. And we also have learned of late about this new market for collectibles, especially when it comes to trading cards. We were talking about that uh, over the past few weeks in terms of assigning value to certain things, maybe in a way that we haven't before. And as I said before, you know, technology uh, has really enabled a lot of this and you're able to to buy and sell things and show people pictures of it, et cetera, et cetera. One other thing I, I did want to bring to the fore because it happened after we taped our show last week, we've talked a lot about ownership and player empowerment and all sorts of things. Uh, a little bit of a coda to a story that, that we had talked about, which is the Atlanta Dream, the WNBA team in Atlanta. Kelly Leffler, um, former U.S. Senator from the great state of Georgia, lost her reelection bid, and she got crossways last summer, as you will recall, with her own team, the Atlanta Dream, uh, over her stance on the Black Lives Matter movement, the Atlanta Dream and their colleagues across the WNBA uh, ended up endorsing her opponent, Raphael Warnock, now Senator Raphael Warnock in the U.S. Senate. Well, Kelly Leffler sold the team. Not surprisingly, we knew that was going to happen. The kicker and a really interesting thing, historic, the first ever former player in the WNBA is going to be an owner and an executive talking about Renee Montgomery. I got to say, Lynchy. I like it. I, I, I like that turn of events just from a narrative perspective. And, you know, here you have a young former uh, player, a young black woman who moved to Atlanta, really took up the cause to the point where she sat out uh, of the 2020 WNBA season to focus on social activism. Now she's going to own the team. I think it's absolutely spectacular. And uh, this is what what a, a loud voice can do. And, you know, Leffler uh, was absolutely wrong. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Donald Sterling when he owned yep. the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, very, very similar. But now you've got a former player with uh, with an ownership stake here. And, um, you know, a lot of good things came out of 2020. And uh, that's one of them. Well, thanks so much for joining us, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly, along with Michael Barr and Mike Lynch. Today, a timely conversation, a big conversation, especially If you're a Yankees fan, New York Yankees president Randy Levine here with us on the line. Randy, great to have you with us, and especially good because 
It's baseball season. Thank goodness. Baseball is back. Not quite to where we need it to be, but that's the world that we're living in. Give us an update. Like, what's the game that we're going to expect to see on opening day? Well, it's great to be with you guys, and uh, I hope everybody is healthy and well. And uh, I think uh, it's exciting. I mean, uh, we're in spring training. Uh, It's going very, very well. the commissioner and the union negotiated protocols that are very, very uh, protective and substantial uh, because, you know, protecting our players is uh, is the most important thing. People are getting vaccinated, and hopefully they'll continue to get vaccinated uh, at, at larger numbers. So, uh, so far, spring training's been great. You know, there have been limited fans, but thank God they're fans, and, and uh, it's a whole different game when there were fans. And uh, so we're expecting a a regular season, at least here in New York. Uh, We're in the process of negotiating with uh, the governor and uh, the health department and uh, people in the state to see uh, how many fans uh, uh, will be allowed uh, uh, on opening day. Uh, The governor's been very reasonable with us uh, all throughout this situation. And uh, you know, it's about the science. So uh, we're actually uh, in the process of uh, trying to work out something that we think, of course, we can do safely because uh, the, the, the health of our fans is paramount, uh, but also do it in a way that can get uh, the maximum amount of people in the ballpark. So uh, we're excited. I think uh, with a little luck, uh, we're going to have a, a, a real you know, 162-game season. Speaking as a Tigers fan, sir, I'd just like to say congratulations because you already beat the snot out of us in spring training. So uh, hopefully we'll get our act together and try to get something going, which brings us to this I don't point. think you should worry about spring training, my friend. Don't worry. <laughs> I worry about everything. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, about spring training, because one thing that has happened because of COVID, usually the uh, cities that are in the South or in the Phoenix area uh, with the Cactus League, usually they have uh, a boon for cash because of all the people coming in seeing the games. But this year, uh, it's different because of the COVID restrictions and the limits on the capacity for those parks. Can you talk more about that and, and what that means for the people in spring trading? I can only speak to the Yankees because uh, I'm not really getting reports from any place else uh, as of now. But I think that, uh, yes, I mean, you know, uh, it's hard to travel. You know, people are worried about traveling. Usually there's uh, a lot, a lot of Yankee fans that travel down to Tampa from all over the country uh, to see spring training. Uh, And obviously that's been tempered. Um, People are being careful, as they should be. Uh, but I just think it's after what happened last year with no fans and, 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 and you know, the stress of, of all, what all of us went through, even the fact that there's limited fans there and people, you know, congregating around Steinbrenner Field, there's just a different feel to it. You know, baseball is all about, you know, hope and, spring and starting over and you know you didn't have that feeling last year mm. you, you we're getting it back this year it's going to take time but it, it it we're feeling it so hi randy this is mike lynch up in boston and um 
always enjoy talking with a member of the Yankees. Um, so when when you have people coming to Yankee Stadium, uh, 10% in the state of New York, so let, let's call it a ballpark figure of about 5,000 per game. How do you allocate the seats uh, to satisfy those who you know, want to sit in the luxury seats and those who sit in the bleachers? Uh, how, do you, how do you divide that all up equally? Well, again, uh, Mike, the 10% here in New York was for indoor arenas. We okay. don't have a, a number yet. As I said, we're in the process of, of going through that. You know, we have uh, the governor's people and the health department and people from the state, you know, talking to, uh, to us and, and looking at the stadium. Uh, you know, we, we've been by many, many people, uh, organizations, even before the pandemic, you know, We've been voted by very responsible organizations the uh, the, the healthiest uh, stadium in, in the world. We have uh, a lot of protocols in, in place that uh, never anticipated a pandemic because you can, but anticipated a lot of these things. So once we get the number, then we'll be able to allocate it. Of course, baseball has their own regulations in place that you can't get too close to the players. There has to be plexiglass in, in place in certain areas, certain social distancing requirements. So at the end of the day, uh, that's going to impact some parts of the stadium, whether they be luxury or premium or, you know, bleacher seats. Uh, there's going to you know be changes, but we're not going to know that specific information until we get the word as to what the exact number of fans we can have. So, Randy, from a pure dollars and cents perspective, from a business perspective, how do you come into this year? I mean, you you guys obviously are fortunate. I think it's fair to say it is a you know robust uh, organization when it comes to its its financial standing, and yet. Uh, 2020 was was brutal economically for every company um, and for every organization. How do you sort of, what's the posture, the sort of financial and business posture kind of coming into the 21 season? Well, last year was beyond brutal. Last year was devastating uh, to every professional sports team, especially in baseball. Uh, And, you know, we're the largest revenue uh, team in the game, so we lost the most revenue. And, uh, you know, it hurt. And, uh, you know, lucky uh, because, uh, you know, Hal Steinbrenner and our team, uh, we, we've been able to have reserve funds and control our debt and do all of those things. You know, we managed through it. But, you know, it's going to take more time and more effort, you know, more years for all of us in baseball and all in professional sports to, to manage through it. So we're hoping for more revenue. It's not going to be a full revenue season because obviously we're not starting with, you know, 100% fans and seats. Uh, but, you know, there's some advantages. Last year, you know, when you have regional sports uh, contracts, you pay uh, and get paid on a certain number of games. Obviously, there were only 60 games last year, not 162. So, you know, there had to be rebates. You lose your concession money and signage and sponsorship. So it was brutal. And it's going to be brutal this year. Hopefully, you know, as more people get vaccinated and we get more people in, uh, it'll be, you know, mitigated. But, you know, it's not going to be a, a full year. And you have to plan accordingly. You have to manage your expenses. You have to manage your uh, expectations. Uh, and uh, and hopefully, uh 
manage your staff in a way that you get people back to work. Uh, but they're productive, and and you you don't go too much into debt. So it's going to be a challenge for everybody this year, but it's going to be better than it was last year. Randy, just to go back a, a bit to last summer, getting onto the field, getting the game going again was a little bit fraught, and there were some, shall we say, economic disagreements, as it were, between the players and the teams and the league, sort of all coming together ultimately. But what what's the net effect of that when you think about you know, how the players and the teams have to interact to get to a, a reasonable posture and a reasonable situation, especially um, with that CBA looming? Well, I mean, last year could have been done better. There's no question. I mean, at the end of the day, we reached an agreement. Uh, I think this season was successful. Uh, but, you know, all of us acknowledge, I think, on all sides, that it could have been done quieter, could have been done better. And uh, and hopefully uh, the season is starting now. Uh, this is going to be uh, an important year because next season is uh, a collective bargaining year. And uh, we all have to step back, uh, all of us, and understand that this game is so important to so many people that coming off a pandemic, uh, People just want to have us play. They really don't want to hear about our problems in public. It has to be give and take, as you know, many of you may know, or if you don't, in you know, 1995 and 1996, after the strike, I, I was the, hired to be the chief labor negotiator for Major League Baseball, and, you know, very contentious times, and we reached an agreement. You know, that eventually led to decades of, of labor peace. So it can be done. You know, we need to respect our players, the players of the game. They are very, very important. Uh, but, you know, the union has to understand that, you know, this is also a business and we face some really challenging times. And we have to all negotiate in good faith. There's a lot of good people, smart people uh, on all sides. And, uh, you know, we, we we must must you know reach an agreement. The commissioner, very seasoned labor negotiator, Dan Halem, very very seasoned labor negotiator. They're very very good people. They know what they're doing. Tony Clark uh, used to play for the Yankees. He's a good man. He he represents his players. You know we at the Yankees have a couple of players on the on the executive committee. You know Garrett Cole and and Zach Britton. They're really smart guys and they get it so everybody as somebody who's negotiated labor agreements for 40 years everybody's got to buckle up and and try and compromise and do it quietly and and get us an agreement that everybody can live with or as i used to say when i practice labor law all the time that everybody could be minimally unhappy with. <laughs> it seems like this is a topic we bring up every time we talk about baseball. And you talk about people where it's very important with this game, especially the minor league players. How do you see the long-term player development for the minor league system? I think uh, it, it very. I think it's very positive. Uh, Major League Baseball has taken some, you know, really affirmative steps. Um, they've reorganized the minor leagues. It's now right under, 
it's part of Major League Baseball. It's uh, under the commissioner's office. There are executives who actually spend all their time doing it. Uh, I think uh, we've raised the money, the pay. Uh, we're really serious about improving the working conditions. I think, uh, you know, there was a negotiation uh, to... to limit the number of teams from 160 to 120. I think after the pandemic, uh, many teams had a rough time making it. So uh, uh, we are at 120 now, but now there are different leagues. Uh, baseball is affiliated with a bunch of independent leagues who have done great things. You know, the Atlantic League here, where, you know, uh, it's been used to experiment with uh, runner on second and extra innings and uh, the electric strike zone, and there are a couple other uh, independent leagues. So I think there's going to be a win bat league for college uh, players who are drafted. So I think it's going to be very, very healthy and hopefully uh, more concise and better for the players. They'll, They'll get more money and they will play in more safer, better conditions. Randy, I'm the logistics guy in this group right here. So when fans stop coming to start coming to Yankee Stadium, is it going to be a long process to get into the ballpark? Um, I, I read that they have to have a negative COVID test within 72 hours. How is all that stuff documented, proven to allow people a smooth and entrance entrance and a smooth exit to Yankee Stadium? Well, again, those are the things where, as I said, we're negotiating uh, and discussing. I guess negotiations not the right word we're discussing uh, with the state right now. Uh, but, you know, Yankee Stadium is extraordinarily accessible. Uh, don't know if you guys know there is uh, a 24-hour, uh, we just started 24, we're going to start this weekend. Uh, we've, we've been running a vaccine center, which I think is the most uh, successful one in New York City, maybe the state, where we've been vaccinating thousands of people, bringing them in vaccinating them, getting them out safely, and that's going to go to 24 hours, over, the, uh, I believe, on Friday. So uh, we know how to do it. Um, again, for an outdoor stadium, uh, baseball, there, there's been no set rules yet. The rules you were discussing uh, you know, are really in effect for indoor venues. They may be effect here, but uh, nobody's told us that for sure. And um, just yesterday, there were reports that uh, the state has a app called the Excelsior app, where you will be able to, in effect, show that you're vaccinated, which can easily get you in, or you've had a, uh, a COVID test, and it will get you in. So those are the details we're talking about. I mean, we're, we're, as we've handled uh, the vaccine center, as any Vinti Yankee Stadium, you know, we, we know how to handle people. We know how to treat our customers and our fans, get them in, get them in safe, do it in a, in a respectful way. So we'll make it happen. But I can't speak to the specifics until I know what the specifics are and we're not there yet. You know, Randy, I, I feel like on the other side of the pandemic, everyone who runs a business is thinking about how they're going to run that business differently. Lessons learned uh, in some ways. You are, I would say, we are on the business of sports show, one of the most important businesses in, in New York City, the region, you know, maybe the country. How does your business change going forward? How do you operate differently when we get back to something that's a normal world? What, what have you learned? You know, we've learned an awful lot. I personally learned a lot. I mean, obviously, people are not in the office, so through technology, 
and we learn different ways of communication uh, that can be, you know, pretty effective. We learn that, you know, maybe it's a better use of time in certain areas where people don't have to, you know, come to a meeting live. Maybe you can save time and do it just as efficiently uh, by using uh, technology. Um, different people, uh, because of, you know, the pandemic and the fact that uh, we had a alter our staffing, you know, different people have different st- skills. So I think you have people who are now uh, able to, to, to do things that maybe in the past they didn't think they could. Now they feel confident uh, that they can. I think obviously, you know, all of us had to roll up our sleeves and reassess our expense side of, of things to, to make sure we were not wasting money and we're spending, you know, every dollar was being spent in the most productive way and and get the full bang for the buck. Uh, So I think we've learned a lot about that. I think uh, uh, we've learned a lot how to communicate with our fans and how to stay in touch, you know, uh, especially last year where they couldn't, you know, come to the ballpark. Uh, How do you do it in other ways, whether it be through social media, through, you know, your television networks, uh, through radio, through a whole host of ways. So I think it was a it was a learning experience, not only for our business. I mean, all businesses uh, have changed. And uh, we've learned a lot of lessons. And now the uh, important thing is how do we put them into practice? I know we talk about business on this show, but I have to give a shout-out to the manager, Aaron Boone, and he had a procedure to get a pacemaker, uh, and he is on the men right now. Uh, can you talk more about that and, and what Aaron Boone means to the team? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, I texted with him last evening, and he assured me he was feeling great. Uh, uh, everybody says that his procedure went great, expects to be back in, in a couple of days. Well, yeah, he's uh, he's uh, you know the leader of uh, uh, on the field. He's uh, a wonderful, wonderful person. You know, very, very good person. Loves his players. You know, loves the organization. Sorry, uh, up there in Boston, hit one of the greatest home runs of, uh, of uh, all time, all time for the Yankees. And uh, at the end of the day, we just are so happy that he came out of it well. And thank you so much for asking. <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday off Tim Wakefield, a walk-off homer in American League Championship Series. He is a good man. Everybody th- thinks very highly of him, not only in Boston, but certainly around the, b- the baseball world. Um, make goods with sponsors, uh, Randy, from last year. Obviously, uh, last year was not the same value you would get with the 162-game schedule. Are sponsors hanging in there, or are they sort of uh, st- you know, waiting on the outside, going to dip their toes in the water and say, let me see how this thing goes at first? Both. I mean, there are certain sponsors who, uh, you know, we have long-term relationships. And of course, we have to be fair. You know, negotiate. If they didn't get what they paid for, then, uh, you know, we're fair to them. You know, others just, you know, stay the course, you know, roll over the, the, the business. And then, you know, there are certain sponsors. We have sponsors here at the Yankees, um, you know, big, small, whatever. And, you know, like every business, there are some who just, you know, had serious, serious economic issues themselves and just couldn't, you know, go on. So it's a mixture of both. Uh, we try and be very reasonable. We have long-term relationships. Um, you know, we've also got new sponsors, you know. I mean, as you guys know, you know, 
this whole pandemic, uh, one of the few bright spots of it is uh, there are other businesses that are merged, different kind of businesses, who now, you know, want to find partners uh, with brands such as us in order to get themselves better known. So I think it's going to be, as I said, it's going to be very transitional over the next couple of years. See what happens. It's not only about us, it's about the overall economy and about those individual businesses. And so, Randy, you know, when you think about what we know now about consumption of the game, obviously, since we couldn't go to a stadium last year, we were all watching on TV or, you know, maybe old schoolers like us listening, listening on the radio. Um, But what does that portend, especially when you think about streaming services, you think about sort of broadcast and cable and all of that, how will those agreements, how will the business of, of broadcasting and, and games and the sport of baseball, how's that going to evolve in the short and midterm in your estimation? That's a very complex question. So let yeah. me see if I can take it in, in, in different branches. First, as to, you know, we've all seen, I think that, you know, there has been an erosion in, in the classic cable satellite model. And people, especially young people, you know, uh, really are on their devices. So I think you're going to see a larger movement to streaming uh, and, and alternate uh, uses of, uh, of devices in order to get games, whether they're on you know, traditional cable or satellite, how they'll be streamed. And the challenge all of us have, everybody in the industry, is how do you manage that? Uh, when we purchased Pack the Yes Network, uh, we had partners. Our partners are, you know, in addition to our financial partners, we have Sinclair, who is very strong in the linear business, and Amazon, who is you know, one of the leaders in the digital business, to just try and manage our way through this. And I think the pandemic has accelerated uh, uh, the timeline for uh the combination of, of, of digital as well as linear. And all of us in this business, whether it's baseball or or football or, you know, you're on the cable side, the TV network side, the, the streaming service side, everybody's dealing with this and everybody's going to feel their way through this. And hopefully we all uh, come up with better products and come up with uh, systems that can work for everybody. As far as baseball itself, I think uh, baseball, we're trying very, very hard, um, has to get um, a wider viewership and more acceptance uh, in, in, in the younger demographic. Uh, we're trying hard to be more diverse. I think uh, uh, baseball skews a little uh, higher in age, and I think that's our challenge. Commissioners put a lot of money and a lot of effort into, as of the clubs, into getting younger, getting younger fans, and that ties into social media and, and the appetite. You know, better highlights, cooler shows. You know, better left for somebody who's more cool than I am. You know, to to try and reach that that younger audience because I think that we need to get our audience younger. We need to be more diverse. And uh, we need to highlight our players more. We got great players, and they have great stories. And 
you know, baseball is, is a different game than football or uh, some of the other sports because we play every day for six months, seven months, and, you know, it's an ongoing like, soap opera, and there's a lot of games, a lot of product. Uh, you know, it's a real effort to shorten some of these games. You know, I think four-hour games, people lose their interest, so uh, we've done a lot of stuff to try and shorten the game. So we're working hard on it. You know, you talk about shortening up the game, and if COVID brought anything positive to baseball, and it happened last season, it's the seven-inning doubleheader. And I think that's a great idea, and I just want to know your thoughts about that. I like I like it a lot. I liked all of the changes last year. Me, personally, I thought the uh, – the double headers were great. I liked the idea of uh, an extra innings guy on second base. I thought all of the changes were were really good. I really did, and I think they worked. I think our fans liked them. And so, uh, following up on that, will they? Do you think they re- might be uh, up for negotiation to to be held permanently uh, after twenty twenty one? That's going to be all in the collective bargaining negotiations, all in the CBA. And I think, you know, from, again, um, this is not scientific, but from everything I've heard, I think the players like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, I mean, that if just just based on the very unscientific uh, social media engagement, <laughs> yeah. it, like, uh, it felt like that. You know, Randy, it w- which actually, you know, leads to something I wanted to make sure we talked about, which is, you know, sort of the voice of the, of the players. It's obviously been amplified by social media. It's been amplified, you know, sort of across the board in, in professional leagues, in, in the college uh, leagues. You know, we've gotten to spend some time uh, in the p- past couple months with Curtis Granderson and, and some of his colleagues working with the Players Alliance about, you know, different voices being heard and, and heard louder uh, when it comes to, you know, issues of fairness and, and, and equality. What has baseball done? What, what do you think the Yankees specifically need to keep doing in order to ensure that, you know, the right voices are heard at the right volume? Yeah, that's a great point. I think uh, the commissioner is, you know, we we have a great relationship with the uh, Players Alliance, uh, and, and they should be heard. I mean, everybody should be heard, and they, you know, Curtis Grandison, you know, used to play for the Yankees. I mean, he's a very articulate, strong voice, and, and he has a lot of positive, good things to say, and we should listen to him. I mean, us at the Yankees, uh, we have a diversity committee that has uh, been in place. Uh, we have all leaders of the community on it. You know, we have uh, Spike Lee is on it, and uh, CC Sabathia, and Marcus Timms, and Reggie Jackson, and, you know, uh, really, Brian Smith, our uh, vice president for community affairs, does an incredible job. Uh, you know, just recently we uh, reached an agreement with the City University of New York where we established an internship program for students at the Yankees, for students uh, of the City of New York to intern and eventually get jobs here with the Yankees, you know, uh, give us a more diverse group to, to hire from. So, you know, these are important, important voices. Uh, these are important uh, issues to be discussed out in the open uh, for us to listen, listen carefully and change our behavior. I mean, then that's what we're trying to do. Well, Randy, uh, it's always good to catch up with you and, you know, talking with you about the season. You know, the sun is out, I'm, you know, sitting here in New York as well. Sun is out. 
it's getting a little bit warmer, not so warm today, but you know, it does feel like uh, baseball is is, uh, is coming back. And and as you say, it, it is something I know I can speak for all of us and say that it always makes us feel a little bit better when when opening day is around the corner. So uh, thanks to you, best of luck. Um, I can't say that everyone in this call is like an avid, you know, avidly rooting for for the Yankees. But uh, listen, listen, that's what makes it fun, right? <laughs> that's what that's what that's what it is. And you know those right these times of year when the, it's getting a little warmer and. And the day's getting a little longer. We just love to hear those two words, play ball. So that's where we are, guys. And I always (laughs) enjoy being with you. And please stay well, stay healthy. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Yeah, look forward to seeing you at the ballpark at, uh, at some point. It's a very special place, as you know better than anyone. Thanks again, Randy. So, guys, always good to catch up with Randy Levine. Obviously, timely, given that we are going to see baseball, and it's not going to be totally normal, as he certainly described, and it's a work in progress. Um, But listen, life's a work in progress, especially these days. But uh, certainly a lot more optimism, given that we will see, fingers crossed, fans in the seats. And I I was interested to hear how candid he was Mm. even from the perspective of saying listen it was brutal for our business there's no getting around it and you know and as he pointed out i mean it's sort of like a a, a kind of interesting almost like backwards flex he's like we're the biggest revenue generator so we lost the most (laughs) revenue i mean it is the yankees after all bar yeah i it's again when COVID just slammed baseball in all the sports obviously but it just really slammed baseball and i one thing that i really like that randy brought up when he talked about the love of baseball and i was thinking about this is i take the fdr home every day and uh, as i'm driving on it i'm heading to the george washington bridge at the gwb i'll turn my head to the right and i'll see yankee stadium and i'm like wow that's yankee yeah. stadium and then some guy cuts me off, and I'm yelling, and I'm just doing all over again. <laughs> but it's, when I get home, I realize that's Yankee Stadium. That's the money generator in baseball right there. Yep. And and I don't think about it sometimes because we take it for granted, but that's the whole point. Don't take it for granted. COVID last season highlighted that. So, Lynchy, you know, the yep. other thing that he said that, that really struck me, and, I, and I'm guessing it struck you as well, is this notion, because we talked about it a lot last summer, is like, could have done better with the players in terms of yeah. getting back back <laughs> on the field. His, uh, I loved his phrase. He said, you know, at the end of the day, when, uh, I'd like everyone to be minimally unhappy. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that was a pretty good way of putting it. Uh, you can't always get what you want, as uh, Mick Jagger once sang, and I think that's going to have to be the temperament going into this labor negotiations at the end of this year. This is a big, big one, because if there's ever been a time for intolerance of uh, people hearing millionaires whine, this is it right now. So they really need to be, and not make it so public was another point he said. It could have been done a lot quieter than it was last year. And people, you know, that were losing their jobs and losing family members Mm -hmm. uh, didn't want to hear, you know, Major League Baseball players whining, millionaires whining. And so this is going to be, this is a big year on the field, and it's going to be a huge year off the field. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. 
Well, baseball is back, and for our show's purposes, as you have heard, Bar is back, which means the number of the week is back, <laughs> so my weekly torture begins. Go ahead, Bar. Hi, guys. Miss me? Okay. Well, Here so we much. Go. Yes, we did. <laughs> this is a story out of the New York Times. The Overtime Elite League, they're proposing that they provide a salary and a focus toward a pro career that might be more appealing than college basketball's biggest programs. Now, the new basketball league, backed by a sports media company, is entering the Debate over whether student-athletes should be paid by starting a new venture offering high school basketball players. Stop. That's where the blank, just like the match game, this year in annual salaries. So it's set up for them if they want to skip college. How much are they offering for money annually for these kids to play basketball in this league? All right. Oh, my God. The, the, the world is just tilting my way. I read this story. <laughs> I think I know the answer. This is so exciting. $100,000 a year. Well, I'm going to go 99, 999.99. How's that? Well, somebody's coming up on stage and getting the $100 bonus. Yes, Jason, you are yes, exactly sir. right. Yes, $100,000 annually. I, I'm just wondering uh, how that's going to work out. So, I know. Yeah. I, I have to say, I that caught me up short a, a little bit in the sense of, listen, we've talked a ton about this on this show and, and elsewhere. The economics of college sports are fundamentally broken. I, I don't think it, it's hard to argue otherwise. Um, but that's, that's pretty rich in a lot of ways. And, and I, and I think, and I don't know if you mentioned this bar cause I was too busy, like getting excited about getting the right answer. Um, <laughs> but they will, if you don't ultimately sort of make it to the pros, they will also fund your education too. Right. right. Or the, some of that money will go, go toward education. So, I mean, listen, it is a system that needs to be fixed. Whether this is the way to fix it, I don't know, Lynchy, but something needs to be done. Yeah, I'm just, uh, I just uh, Googled this story right now and I'm looking at it right here. It's as young as 16 years old. You yeah. can go and uh, this is, I don't know, I don't know if this is worse or better than the one and done. Um, because now, I mean, kids will be, instead of dropping out of college after one year, they could be dropping out of high school after one or two years. Uh, you know, hundred thousand dollars—a lot of money. You know, when you're sixteen, it's a lot of money when you're sixty. But uh, you know, I worry about the temptation here. Well, the and then one thing that happens too is that the, the trade-off is the players who accept the deal—they'll forfeit their ability to play high school or college basketball. Right. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So that—that's going to be an. I—I I, I don't know how that's going to work out, but we'll see. Listen, th- stuff. I, I mean, I guess what I would say—you know—the optimistic side of me says. People need to get out there and try stuff, and oftentimes reform comes in response to exogenous forces, as it were. And so if there is an economic alternative, and we've talked about the fact that 2021 could be the year, given name, image, and likeness, given a Supreme Court case around NCAA antitrust again, that something may start to move. And if this is the sort of thing that in the short to midterm starts to accelerate some reform around college athletics, you know, who's to say, and, and maybe that's a good thing, but yeah, it, it's not, um, not foolproof. That's just, that's for sure. 
This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. And I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. Thanks so much for joining us. Tune in next week. We're going to catch up with another team chief. Talk about Cynthia Marshall. She's the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs>